<laughs> I don't even know. Like, I don't even have enough background to ask a question about diplomacy. I've read the back of your book, the back cover. I don't oh, even know. Oh, boy. <clears throat> okay. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Cheap Talk. I'm Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government at William & Mary, and I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you? Doing well. Um, so, Marcus, today I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about diplomacy. Hmm. You're an expert in diplomacy. You have a book on face-to-face diplomacy. So I guess my first question for you is, is diplomacy important? Is this something that we should really be focused on in international relations and that political scientists in particular should be looking at? So, Jeff, that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the things to to point out sort of at the beginning of all this is that, you know, if you go and ask uh, somebody that works at the State Department, you know, a, a diplomat, let's say, or you ask an ambassador or you ask a, a head of state or a retired policymaker whether diplomacy is important, I would venture to say 99.9% of the time they would say yes. They would say, yeah, of course it's important. You know, it's, it's something that we do all the time. And you know, it's important for lots of different reasons, building trust or maybe understanding the intentions of the adversary or, you know, just kind of like hashing out an agreement, negotiating. It's just easier uh, to do through diplomacy. And yet, if you think about sort of political science scholarship, you think about international relations scholarship, for a long time, scholars paid very little attention to diplomacy. They basically regarded it as, I think, you know, sort of at best irrelevant and at worst, actually kind of dangerous. So if you think about something like the Yalta uh, conference, right, where you, you basically had the start of the Cold War because, you know, allegedly Stalin, uh, you know, lied to FDR about a couple of things, including Poland. And that kind of kicked off, you know, a, a not great period uh, for the United States and for the West against the Soviet Union. Or you think about, you know, Munich, famous example of, of trying to negotiate or have diplomacy with, with Adolf Hitler. That also did not work particularly well. So I think for a variety of reasons, political scientists have been very skeptical about whether diplomacy does anything. And to the extent that it does do something, some might argue it actually makes things worse. And I think, you know, there's, there's sort of three big reasons for this. So three big reasons why I think most political scientists historically have been sort of skeptical of, of diplomacy. So I'll just run through those very quickly, and then we can talk about um, maybe how we can come overcome those problems. So the first, I think, is just this basic sort of... Uh, what I talk about is the origins of political interest. If we think about, for example, why North Korea might want to have a nuclear weapon, there's lots of different arguments that we can make. Some might say that they want to protect their country, protect the regime, so that they have a nuclear weapon for essentially defensive purposes. They don't want the United States invading and taking out the regime. Other people might argue uh, they want it for offensive reasons, that they want to strike South Korea, Japan, maybe Alaska, Guam, you know, West Coast of the United States. And there's all kinds of different arguments in between those two sort of poles, right? Now, I think what most political scientists would say is that the, the origins of those interests have nothing to do with diplomacy. The origins of those interests go back to, you know, let's say the Korean War, or they go back to the State of the Union address when George W. Bush said there's an axis of evil, there's three countries on that axis, you know, Iran, North Korea, and Iraq, and then the United States goes and invades Iraq, you know, North Korea might be thinking, what's next? We're, we're next, right? So their, their interest is essentially not being um, invaded, not being the next part of that access to, to fall. And so for that reason, political interests and diplomacy don't really have much to do with one another. We can't, we can't change interests through diplomacy. At the, at the very least, you might be able to sort of reveal what your, what your interests are. But the fundamentals of, of political interests just don't really have a whole lot to do with, with diplomacy. They have to do with things like security, you know, and nuclear weapons you know, provide security, arguably. And so that's the reason why uh, somebody like North Korea might want a nuclear weapon. 
A second big problem, I think, is this this notion of of signaling. And we've talked about this on this podcast before, but it's it's worth mentioning. Actually, the title of this podcast is called Cheap Talk, right? Which I think kind of hints at, at the problem here, which is a lot of political scientists will look at diplomacy as essentially cheap talk. So, uh, you know, Stalin could tell FDR whatever he wanted in that, that summit in Yalta, and it just doesn't really matter, right? Because there's no real court in the international system to go to when things go wrong. There's no way to sort of hold heads of state accountable. You know, talk is cheap. And, and so if you have an interaction with somebody, a negotiation with somebody, and they and they say, uh, you know, they make a promise to you. It's cheap talk because there's nothing backing it up. And so political science would say, you know, if you're going to send a signal, it has to have some type of cost attached to it. It has to be a costly signal where you sort of show uh, that you're serious. We kind of put your money where your mouth is and say, okay, we're actually serious about uh, what, our, what our stated intention here is. Um, and so, for example, with the North Korea case, again, some people have said, you know, maybe it would make sense for the United States to withdraw some troops from South Korea or stop military exercises, or you know, a variety of other things that would have some type of cost uh, attached to, to that signal in order to convey to the North Koreans that we're, we're serious. The other sort of basic problem here, too, is that, you know, and it's, it's linked to signaling, is that people, people sort of you know, lie uh, in face-to-face interaction. So it's, it's cheap talk, but cheap talk probably wouldn't be a problem if people weren't deceptive from time to time. And so because people can be deceptive or they can dissemble, that makes this problem very acute. And I think the last one, the third one would be that, uh, you know, things change. So we have this sort of latent sort of future uncertainty problem. So even if you negotiate a good deal today, uh, that deal might not look so hot tomorrow or 10 years from now or, or whenever. And so I think policymakers um, are, are kind of aware of that and they, they take note of that. But IR scholars are very much concerned with this. So I think, you know, somebody like uh, John Mersheimer or, or any of the realists, I think, would, would be quick to point out that because the future is uncertain, it's just not clear, uh, you know, what what you can really do in any type of negotiation that's going to provide you with any certainty that lasts more than a, a day or two, right? Because people change, regimes change, countries change, the structure of the, situ- so the system changes. All those kinds of things mean that, you know, negotiation or diplomacy is is probably very uh, difficult or at best or maybe even meaningless uh, at worst. Now, those are three big problems that political scientists have pointed out about diplomacy. But what's interesting is the, the people who do international politics continue to participate in diplomacy. So, you know, one of the, one of the stable findings, you know, for the last, I don't know, six, seven centuries, basically, has been that heads of state, diplomats, ambassadors, policymakers, they travel the globe to meet with one another. They do these, these trips and they talk to one another. Uh, and so the question is why, right? Because the political scientists are right then this is incredibly stupid. These, these heads of state are just wasting their time. They're basically doing something that doesn't matter, or like I was mentioning before, might be actually dangerous, and yet they continue to do it. And so the question becomes, well, you know, what's going on here? Are these, are these policymakers, these diplomats just naive? They just they think that what they're doing matters, and it, it really doesn't? Or alternately, could it be that political scientists have sort of made these three problems out to be a little bigger than they actually are? And so I think that's, that's kind of the backdrop to this, this whole idea of, of diplomacy and to what extent it actually makes a difference is, you know, political science just has not taken it very seriously, and yet policymakers seem to take it very seriously. And so that creates this kind of puzzle um, about, you know, what, what is actually, actually going on here. So that's, that's basically where, where I'm coming from with my uh, work, is trying to make sense of, of this puzzle of why policymakers pursue something that I think a lot of political science uh, would suggest is, is not all that relevant. Jeff, I'd be curious to hear your take on, on diplomacy. Do you, do you think it matters at all? Or, or how, would you, how would you sort of answer that question that you posed to me? No, I don't think it matters. 
So I, I think studying diplomacy in international affairs is, is similar to studying like email in business affairs, right? So the function of diplomacy is to communicate, uh, to, to communicate between states. And yes, it, it can be at a high level. It can even be heads of state that are doing the communicating. But diplomacy itself, it seems to me to be really just this quotidian, kind of this lower level function of transmitting information, right? And as you mentioned, you know, there's this issue of costly signaling and, and that sort of the signals that are being sent to back up diplomacy, that's happening elsewhere, right? It's usually not the diplomacy itself that is the signal, that is the costly signal that's being negotiated upon. So you might have uh, ambassadors meeting to discuss some peace deal. In the background, somewhere else, there are armies massing on a border, there are uh, troops being repositioned. There are limited probes taking place um, that may involve, you know, small battles. Those are the costly signals. What's happening in the room with the ambassadors is just the kind of basic communication element of the situation. People talking to each other, that could ha happen over email. And it's not clear to me that there's something special about that interaction between those two diplomats or between even heads of state that makes this kind of its own thing that we need to be studying, absent the kind of overarching issues of when a leader makes a statement, how do we make that statement costly so that it represents a real commitment by the leader? Okay, that's good. I like that. Let me, let me uh, approach this slightly differently and think about um, an example that I like to use in my class. I think it, it's a sort of illustrative uh, one for the point that I'm, that I'm trying to make with diplomacy. So, you know, we talk about the end of the Cold War. We talk about that, that period in the 1980s. Um, when, you know, things were kind of touch and go, right? It, it, it could have gone a couple different ways. You could have had uh, basically an escalation between the United States and the Soviet Union end up with, you know, the Cold War ending with some sort of, you know, nuclear war. Uh, or alternately, you could, you could have what we ended up having, which was essentially the Cold War just kind of fizzles out and it ends, you know, more or less with a whimper. Um, and the question is, you know, sort of what, what explains that? And, you know, scholars have looked at this uh, Cold War case, you know, probably more than any other case, uh, maybe with the exception of World War I, um, in international relations, trying to explain what happened, like what, what, what gives, like how do, we, how do we make sense of this? And it's particularly puzzling if you go back and look at what people, particularly heads of state, were saying at the time. So Reagan, um, you know, 1983, calls the Soviet Union the evil empire, right? So that's 83. And then four years later, five years later, I think in 88, he says uh, the Soviet Union is, our, is now our partner in peace, right? So you have over the course of like four to five years, basically, a, a tremendous transformation in, in the Cold War, like what the Cold War meant, basically, and, and the relationship between the two, uh, you know, sort of uh, superpowers, right? And what was happening at that time, of course, was a series of summits. So it's first, you know, in Geneva, where, where uh, Gorbachev and Reagan got together, then in Reykjavik, and then in Washington. And then in Moscow, finally. And over the course of those summits, you start to see this relationship change a little bit, right? Now, traditionally, this has been explained by, you know, things like the deteriorating economic conditions of the Soviet Union, uh, this, this idea of, you know, sort of a, a rethinking of what the relationship between the United States and Soviet Union was going to look like on the part of the Soviets, basically a realization that they had lost. The United States had sort of outspent the, the U.S. in, in uh, uh, defense spending. And so they weren't going to win. And so they wanted to sort of manage to get out of this in a way that they could sort of save a little face, but also uh, end the Cold War in a way that, that, that sort of advantages them. But what's really interesting to me anyway is when I look back at this, this period of history, what's fascinating is that, you know, Gorbachev comes into power and he's like, OK, I want to change this relationship. I want to I have a better relationship with the United States. And so the Soviets do 
exactly what the political scientists say you should do, right? July in 1885, they send a costly signal. They make an announcement. They say the, United, the Soviet Union is not going to uh, have any more nuclear explosions, right? They're basically saying, we're going to unilaterally do this, right? A costly thing that we're doing to show the United States that we're serious. And what the United States does is they basically say, that costly signal that you think you're sending us is, to us is a joke. Right, that that costly signal doesn't mean anything, and the reason it doesn't mean anything is is it gets to this sort of future uncertainty problem, which I mentioned before, which is that uh, the Soviets don't need to test right now. Like they're gonna they're gonna test when they need to. The fact that they're doing this, uh, you know, basically is a, is an indication that they don't need to test right now. There's no guarantee in the future that they're gonna they're gonna do this, right? And so so they're at this sort of point though, where the the United States are interpreting this costly signal that's being sent by the Soviets in a way that that is not the way that the Soviets, I think, intended that that costly signal to be received. And the United States is saying, this cost is not high enough. Like, you need to do something that's a little bit more costly in order to convince us. And the Soviets are saying, this is a very costly signal to us, you know? So in other words, one of the problems with costly signaling, just in the the sort of way that we, like rationalists, for example, think about them in international politics, is that cost is always subjective, right? Cost is always in relation to who is paying that cost and who is viewing that cost. And so sometimes these things just don't, don't, don't line up. So what you, you know, Jeff, you, you do something that you think is very costly. I look at that and I say, that's not costly, Jeff. You know, that doesn't show me anything about his intentions, right? And that's exactly what happened in this particular case. So, so the, the thing that the political scientists would, would like to have happened was done. Costly signal was sent, and the United States completely rejected it and actually responded with their own nuclear test shortly thereafter. So they said, I'll, I'll show you what, we're gonna, what we think of your costly signal. And they basically, you know, said, we don't think much of it, right? Now, just one last thing on this. At the same time, What's happening is Reagan is talking about the Strategic Defense Initiative. So uh, for those that don't know what this is, it was basically this very costly, elaborate scientific program where the United States was kind of concocting a, a system where they'd be able to blow away uh, nuclear weapons en route you know, to the United States in, in the sky, right? So, so we, some of the plants had lasers, some of the plants had missiles, you know, it wasn't exactly clear how this was going to work. And it turns out that the the scientists never, well, eventually they figured out it wasn't going to work, despite the fact they spent something like $30 billion on it. But it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that Reagan is saying, we got this strategic defense initiative, okay? We're going we're gonna to take your, your nuclear weapons and you shoot them at us, and we're going to blow them out of the sky. Gorbachev is saying, wait a second. You're telling me you have a system of missiles that you're going to shoot up into the air, and you're going you're gonna to say that they're for defensive purposes. We don't know that. We don't know your, your weapons are going to be used for defensive purposes. And so, again, you know, it's sort of this, 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 this core problem of international politics, like this idea of weapon dis- distinguishability. The Soviets are saying, you could use those missiles for offense. You could use those to hit us. You could use those to hit, you know, states that we care about in the system. And, and what Gorbachev says is, why would we do that? We have no intention of doing that. You got to trust us. You got to believe us. This is just purely for defensive purposes, right? So, again... Even though both sides are trying to convey their sincerity to the other side, uh, they, they find it very difficult to do. And they're, they're just not able to convince the other side that, that you know, they, they don't actually have offensive of aims. And so it was only then at that moment that Reagan said, you know what? I got to go over there and I got to sit down with somebody and explain to them what I actually believe and why we're doing this. And, you know, the argument that I make is that that was actually the right move, that, that that human sort of connection between the two leaders was one of the things that got us to the point where the Cold War uh, ended peacefully, precisely because he was able to explain to Gorbachev that he was sincere. And importantly, Gorbachev was able to tell in that interaction, at least his perception was, 
that Reagan was being sincere. And that that starts the, the development of the relationship that, that eventually ends ends the Cold War. So I just use that as an example because it, it sort of highlights some of the things that the political scientists have, have sort of pointed to as being the things you should do and how those actually failed. And then diplomacy kind of comes in afterwards to help clean up the mess a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. That's that's an interesting case. I guess no one said that the that communication in international affairs would be easy. And so I, I don't know that this indictment of signaling theory is all that much of an indictment. I mean, we know that it's really hard to send an effective signal that that illustrates your commitment. And I think I think that's one of the reasons I'm skeptical of diplomacy as the answer to these kinds of questions, because if taking these really costly actions doesn't send a clear signal, then just saying the same thing to someone in person is going to send that signal. That seems like a tough sell to me. I mean, my, my naive view of summitry and this idea of summit diplomacy is that these things are the, the symptom, not the, not the disease. These things are the effect, not the cause. That there's something happening around these summits that created the conditions for a summit so that the leaders can go and sign on the dotted line. And in fact, I mean, if you talk to foreign service officers and diplomats who do this for a living, there's no way, it, in, at least prior to the Trump administration, there's no way you bring the president to a summit if you don't already have an agreement ready for the president to sign. It's not The summits are not there for the president to chat up the, uh, the other side. The summits are there for the photo op, for the publicity, for, you know, sending a signal that, that you take this new agreement that you've already reached very seriously. Now, uh, there are cases, of course, where like they were almost at the finish line. Right. And like Clinton comes to, um, you know, Y River and pushes them over the over the line. But but it's it's really mostly been handled. The outlines of the agreement are ready. And then you call the summit to draw attention to the work that you've done. And so it's not that these these summits are creating the agreement that they are signing. It's that the conditions have already coalesced enough around an agreement that there's something to be had. And so a summit can then be called. And I think of it similarly to, you know, we, we can talk maybe a little bit about these kind of formalized treaties and that come out of diplomacy. But when you think about, for example, arms control agreements using the same kind of Cold War example. So um, in arms control agreements, there's these long lists of, of weapon systems that that countries have decided that they're no longer going to use and we're going to kind of cooperatively, the U.S. and the Soviet Union together are going to cooperatively agree to get rid of some of these, say, nuclear weapons. And so if you're a proponent of arms control, you kind of look at this story and you say, wow, look at all the weapon systems that these countries decided together in, as part of the arms control process to get rid of. And if you're a little bit more skeptical of the process, you might say, well, here's a list of weapon systems that the countries were already willing to get rid of. And they went together and they both agreed to give up the things they were going to give up anyway, right? And so the arms control agreement is itself kind of an effect of the underlying condition, the thing that had already happened, which was the decision that these weapon systems were no longer necessary for the defense of these countries. Yeah, I think that's, that's a nice uh, response. And I actually agree with a lot of what you said. So, you know, certainly I think that there have to be certain conditions that are present for symmetry to happen, right? So... I kind of view uh, this whole process as being somebody has to kind of open the window or a, a door has to be open, you know, a jar, at least a little bit that, you know, can kind of kick off the, the diplomacy process. Those don't always have to be positive things. I mean, so one of the things that happened in the 80s was this, this sort of uh, infamous Able Archer uh, NATO exercise, which 
you know, depending on who you, who you talk to and depending on the history that you read, there was some concern at the Soviet Union that this was actually real. Like this was actually a, a NATO exercise that was not just for practice, but essentially was sort of mobilization to maybe, maybe attack. And, you know, what happens is, is the Soviet Union looks at it and they get very, very concerned. And then the Reagan administration looks at it and they, they're sort of perplexed because they think, how in the world would the Soviet Union think that this was real? Like, why, why would they ever think that, right? And I think what this, this kind of shows is that both of these, these entities, both of the United States and the Soviet Union and the heads of state and policymakers that are working, you know, on behalf of them are operating with certain images in their head about the other, but also importantly, their, their, their own self, right? So when Reagan says, how, how is it possible that they could ever think that we were going to attack? What he's doing is he's basically imputing his sort of defensive-minded uh, mindset, which he knows he has, but of course Gorbachev doesn't know he has that, uh, and saying, like, why would they interpret it this way when they know that I'm, I'm defensive? And the crucial sort of door opening in this particular case is Reagan having the realization that, oh, Gorbachev doesn't see this in the same way I do. He doesn't see that, that it's obvious that I, I wouldn't strike the Soviet Union. It's not, it's not obvious to him, anyway, that the United States doesn't have any aims as a, for a first strike. That was the moment where he said, the only way I can convince these guys that that part is true is to have diplomacy. And I, and I think he's right about that, because it's not clear to me, and, and I, I take your point that there's, you know, communication of all types is important, but that's the type of thing that it seems difficult to convey in like a cable wire or even a telephone call. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a human conversation that you need to have with somebody where you can try to be as sincere as possible and say to the other side, look, it's, it turns out that your concerns are also my concerns, right? That the way you're looking at this is actually very similar to the way I'm looking at this. And by the way, both of us represent countries uh, that, that don't really want to go to war with one another, right? So, so they were kind of locked in this kind of, you know, whether you want to think about it as prisoner's dilemma or whatever, they're locked in this sort of setup where it's very difficult to convince the other side that they're being sincere. And, you know, Reagan's intuition was that the only way to change that, the only way to change that is to go to, to meet with them. The other, the other just small thing I would, I would say, too, is it's really fascinating when you go back and look at the sort of intelligent est intelligence estimates that were being written at the time, the people in the Defense Department in the 80s that were sort of monitoring the Soviet Union and looking at, you know, things like the number of weapons they have and, you know, tank locations and all the kind of traditional security stuff that you might put into an intelligence estimate. A lot of those people were incredibly uh, skeptical of the Soviets all along, right? So somebody like Casper Weinberger... Um, you know, sort of a, a, a hawk regarding the Soviet Union and was never convinced that you could trust Gorbachev. Never convinced. And, and Reagan goes over there and, and talks to him and comes back and says, actually, I, th I think we can, we can trust this guy. And, and Casper Weinberg is like, what are you crazy? He's just, it's, he's pulling the wool over your eyes. You know, it's just, it's, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing or whatever the expression is, right? And so I think that's another interesting anecdote or, or sort of source of data is to look at the people who did not have the diplomatic interactions, the ones that are only looking at the sort of material facts on the ground uh, and what conclusions they're drawing versus the conclusions of people that are drawing uh, that actually have, have the interactions. And so that's one of the things that I, I look to and see sort of if there's a difference there, because if there's, a, if there's a difference, then it means that the diplomacy is doing something. Uh, and then just the question is, like, what exactly is, is that thing? Marcus, I'm old enough to remember when George W. Bush brought Vladimir Putin to the ranch in Texas and looked deep into his eyes and, and saw into his soul and knew that he would be able to trust Putin to be a fair broker on the part of, uh, on the part of Russia. So I think this maybe goes both ways, right? Like if diplomacy is just a chance for some U.S. president to make 
maybe the right assessment, maybe the wrong assessment of their other their counterpart, then what what is this? I mean, it, wouldn't it be better to base this all on actual things that the countries are doing as opposed to, well, he seemed really trustworthy when I when I looked at him in person and we were there were bales of hay and it was it was a nice day out. I mean, what what are we really talking about here? Okay, so I, I think you you hit at something which is really important, which is there's two different and there's basically two different ways to think about what, what we're talking about here. So the first is the question of how do policymakers derive uh, beliefs about adversaries or allies or whatever, right? And so that's a that's essentially a, a perception question, right? So here it's it's interesting that in that example, Bush did get something by talking to Putin. He did draw a conclusion about him. Um, and that might have been important for the things that he did in the future, right? So if we take him seriously on this point, and again, you know, there's, whenever leaders talk, you, there, there's uh, various audiences that they're speaking to. And so, you know, it might have been the case that he actually didn't believe what he was saying, but he wanted a better relationship with Russia. And so therefore he was saying he's trustworthy and all that kind of stuff. But putting that aside, assuming he's being tr- truthful, what that question is about is sort of, you know, well, how are policymakers making their, their decisions? Uh, how are they, what, what is the intelligence that they're using? And, you know, one of the findings that's come out in the last, you know, 10 years or so in, in international relations is that for better or for worse, a lot of these heads of state do really privilege these, these face-to-face interactions. They do privilege these sort of personal moments. Karen Yarhimilo, uh, one of my co-authors and colleagues, has this really nice book where she says, look, you know, during the Cold War, and, and you know, you had these, these heads of state basically getting in, you know, sort of inundated with information, like all kinds of data like, that was available to them about the, the adversary's intentions. But more often than not, what they actually used were their personal impressions that they had in meetings, right? So the, so the first question is, okay, how are policymakers like getting, you know, sort of views about the other side? Can, can, can I just say, Marcus, that that's a great book. And if you read one book in diplomacy, then let, me, <laughs> let me recommend Karen's book. That's a great line, Jeffrey. I would recommend actually reading both my book and her book in tandem because they make a great pair. Um, so what, what this, and by the way, we also have an article together, which maybe we'll get to in a second. But the, um, the, the, so the first thing is, how do policymakers gain their uh, beliefs about the other side, right? And her point is, and I, my book you know, basically shows the same thing, they, they privilege these sort of interactions. But then the question is, okay, well, how accurate are those assessments, right? So it's one thing to say policymakers are, are privileging these interactions for information, but then how accurate are they? And there, I think the question becomes, well, in, in relation to what? What is the baseline? So are we, are we basing this off of you know, the, what the CIA is, is sort of saying at the time? Are we basing this off of what the Defense Department is, is sort of deducing or the intentions of the other side? And I got to tell you, when you go back and look at the record, it's, it's not like the, the heads of state really are getting this wrong any more often than, than the Defense Department is, right? For the reasons that we, we sort of discussed already on this podcast. You know, that's, it's, very, it's very tricky sort of reading the tea leaves of international politics and assessing whether or not these signals are really costly enough or they, they reveal true intentions or anything else. So I think as a baseline statement, it's, it, it is true that leaders uh, might get it wrong uh, from time to time. And I think you would probably agree that that's, that's also congruent with the observation that, you know, states just get it wrong, you know, from time to time too. And so we needed to find the baseline. I, I will say about the, 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 the Bush and Putin thing, um, I, I talk about this one in my book a little bit because I think it's it's fascinating. I mean, one of the the things that the research in psychology shows about face to face interactions is that the sort of um, general sense of somebody's soul is not really what the experimental evidence says uh, you can derive. So, in other words, you might over time kind of get a sense of who somebody is. Like, you know, Jeff, we've had a lot of interactions over time. I, I kind of have a sense of what you're all about, um, but on first meeting. 
it's kind of tricky to sort of derive a uh, you know sense of somebody's trustworthiness based on a, a, a couple minute conversation. And indeed, if it was you know if if that was easy and accurate, uh, you know, social life would be a lot different, right? So we know just sort of you know intuitively that you can't really get a sense of somebody completely through an interaction. Instead, the research in, in that comes out of experimental psychology on on face to face interaction versus other types of interaction, say over a telephone, written letter, stuff like that. Is that you can gain a, gain a sense of of you know people's um, sincerity on specific things, and so when they're talking about let's say like a specific intention to do something, and you're sort of reading their their cues and you're reading their body language and stuff like that, you can get a, a sense of whether or not they're telling the truth about that. But the the idea that that Bush was ever going to be able to sort of get come away with a very specific uh, sort of sense of who Putin was based on a, a one interaction, um, I don't think is is all that realistic. You brought up a couple of great examples here. So we talked a little bit about Yalta, about um, the Bush-Putin interactions. I guess my question for you is, to what extent does diplomacy matter in the average case? So maybe we can point to a few cases where diplomacy was essential, that this kind of face-to-face interaction really made the difference. But how many cases like this are there? Could of of the percentage of president to president summits out there, if you changed all of them to email interactions between diplomats instead of in person interactions between the president, the respective heads of state, how many agreements fall apart? I, I mean, my my initial impression would be very few. That that really the mechanism that's happening here is that we're just communicating information back and forth. That kind of thing is necessary to reach a deal ultimately that the structure of the situation is what it is, and that's going to drive the, the the kind of outlines of that deal. And so for the most part, if we took the person-to-person interaction in terms of in, in-person discussions between heads of state out of the equation, we'd end up with kind of roughly the same deals, roughly the same amount of the time. And maybe there are a few really impactful cases that we can point to where where this, this was a, a key um, element of the of an eventual agreement. But in the vast majority of cases, probably not. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I would have two responses to that. First of all, I I tend to fall into the same trap that a lot of IR scholars do, which is that we're very attracted to these high profile cases. So, uh, you know, I, I I wanted to understand why the Cold War ended the way it did, and so I wanted to look at Geneva and Reykjavik and and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to understand you know, how the Camp David Accords, you know, came to be in 1978, like how, how you get Israel and Egypt to agree to a peace deal uh, that seemed very unlikely uh, at the time. And frankly, I think, you know, should have been viewed as unlikely at the time. And yet Jimmy Carter was able able to do it. So I'm I'm sort of attracted to these uh, big sort of puzzling cases. And so I and I and I grant you that um, those in some ways might be uh, exceptional. So it, it might just be the case that precisely because we know about them <laughs> and precisely because, you know, they're sort of these big moments of history, there's something special about those cases that make them different than the sort of quotidian, and to use the word I think you used before, quotidian interactions that people are, are having all the time. Um, so I, I, I think you might be onto something there. I think that might be true. It is a challenge, I, I agree, for anybody that does work in diplomacy, that they have to sort of make the argument that were it not for uh, like in my case, these face-to-face interactions, that the outcome would have would have been different, and you know that's that's a difficult bar to to reach with any um, any social science really, but but I think particularly it's it's tricky for diplomacy. I think the one the one case we haven't talked about yet that uh, would be relevant is this one I, I referenced a second ago with uh, this paper that I have with Karen Arhimila, where we look at the Camp David Accords uh, in 1978 because. 
this this really does get to uh, a claim that you made a second ago, which is that uh, symmetry is sort of a, a like it's the photo op at the end. Like all the hard work has been sort of done, and 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 the the groundwork has been laid, and basically all they need to do is get there and shake hands, have a dinner, and take a picture. Well, what what happened in Camp David was uh, Jimmy Carter had this this crazy notion to try this, despite the fact at the time that his his own advisors were telling him not to do it. So he, they were basically saying, uh, don't have this summit for precisely the same reasons that you just articulated, which is we don't think we have both Israel and Egypt in the you know, sort of zone of possible agreement or the bargaining range, whatever you want to talk about, they weren't there yet. And nevertheless, uh, Carter kind of persisted. He was really, he believed in his powers, uh, essentially, of kind of getting consensus. And he thought that if he could get these two, two guys in a room, Sadat and Begin in a room, um, to, to negotiate, and if he could, he could sort of, you know, moderate between the two, that he would be able to get to an agreement. And, and literally, like on the first day, the whole thing almost falls apart, because what he realizes is that he was wrong that actually Sadat and Begin kind of hated each other. They get in the same room and they, they, it doesn't work at all. Sadat has this like long list of demands going back all the, this historical stuff and Begin gets offended and almost leaves. And so the whole thing basically almost falls apart like in the first hour, um, which I think is one, it sort of belies the idea that these summits are always you know, sort of pre-figured out. But also I think to Carter's credit, what he realized was, okay, maybe I made a big mistake here. But I, did, I need to salvage this because he didn't want to just, you know, on day one, call the thing off. And, you know, domestically, he would look like an idiot, right? He would be like a very foolish to have done this. So he, he switches tax and he says, all right, well, these guys hate each other. That's not going to work. Let me work with each one individually. Try to build uh, some understanding with, you know, Begin one-on-one, Sadat one-on-one. And essentially what, what, he, what Karen and I argue in this piece is he was able to see a bargaining range that the other two guys weren't able to see. And once he was able to figure that out, he could communicate to, to both sides what that bargaining range actually was and say, look, here's where, here's where you are. Here's where they are. Here's where you could get to. And if you move here and they move here, we're, we have a deal that both sides will, will accept. And he was able to convince both sides also that they're, they're you know, we talk about negotiations with BATNA, your best alternative to negotiate agreement. Their BATNAs weren't that great because what it was going to mean is they would have to go home say that they did this summit, say that it failed and, and this and that, and there would be costs to pay for that. So he was able to really sort of, under, Carter was, able to understand where Begin was coming from, able to understand where Sadat was coming from, and kind of closed the triangle, if you will, uh, between those two and, and made a deal possible. So I think that's a really nice example. And again, you know, this, is, this gets back to your point, Jeff, that this is a, a high profile case. This might be the exceptional one, right? This might be something, there's something about this case that just doesn't apply to other cases. And, and I take that point. That might be the case. Uh, it doesn't generalize. But I do think it's an, it's an interesting example of a summit not being predetermined. Um, and indeed, one's own advisor saying, don't do it, like as you're walking <laughs> into the room. Can you imagine being the president? And you, you're, I mean, maybe Trump experienced this, I don't know. But people uh, telling you not to do something as you are actively doing it, that's kind of stressful. Well, and this is actually a really interesting case, I think, partly f for the reason you mentioned that, that be because it wasn't a predetermined outcome. And you sometimes hear foreign service officers or diplomats who've been responsible for arranging these summits talking about the power of summitry failure as kind of the thing they want to leverage to get the parties over the edge. That is, they get the situation usually to a place where we're very close to a deal. And then they count on the fact that no one wants to admit failure to kind of help get everyone in a room and, and push forward to the deal. But usually the deal is, is still in sight. And, and one of the interesting things about the, the, the Carter case is that it may be that 
maybe the fact that this was so unusual in him coming to a situation where the deal wasn't already laid out on the table was what helped him kind of push through to the deal because it was a kind of a costly signal to be present at this this summit to be taking on the potential political costs of taking ownership of this negotiation that gave Carter additional leverage in the negotiation itself and so there's a there's a non-diplomacy diplomacy story here to be told that, that goes back to kind of signaling and audience costs and, and those kinds of, of issues with how do we generate a costly signal out of these negotiations? Well, just being in a negotiation can be can be a costly signal in, in, in some situations. And that might be enough to kind of to, to push through to an agreement that, that you might not be able to otherwise. Totally agree. I think that's I think that's a really good point. I mean, one of the interesting things about summits is that if you adopt sort of the rationalist, you know, the sort of broadly rationalist view here, that it's not really diplomacy that matters, it's the, it's the agreements that were sort of in the worst beforehand, summits should never fail, right? Because for the, you know, it's, it's either prearranged, at, you know, which might account for a lot of them. And then when it's not prearranged, or if they, they sort of misread the other and they thought it was prearranged, but it wasn't, once they're there, they don't want it to fail. Because that, that each side is going to pay a cost. Whoever is convening is going to pay a cost, right? I mean, you know, just to, to, to plug an alternative way of viewing this. So there, there's, a, there's a great article in um, International Studies Quarterly that looks at the costs and benefits of negotiation. And here, you know, that the kind of concept is that just getting to the table means that some of these parties have to bear costs that they wouldn't otherwise if they weren't engaged in negotiation. And in this way of thinking, you can imagine like in a civil war um, that parties may face reputational costs just by being willing to talk to their opposing side. And if you're a government talking to rebels, you've just granted your rebel group some kind of legitimacy that they might not have otherwise had that would allow them to maybe get outside support and improve their situation in the battlefield. So the decision to negotiate in the first place is very fraught and carries all these potential costs and benefits for the parties. But then in this way of looking at it, once you get to the summit, you've borne the costs, right? A lot of the costs have already been been incurred on the part of those who are present at the summit. And so then if the summit fails, eh, you know, it's, it's less of a big deal. The costs are already borne. They're sunk, right? So now it's just about, is this agreement the right agreement for us? Um, and so this might explain why you do see summits failing on occasion, even though you might expect that there is an audience cost associated with actually committed to be at the table and then leaving the table without an agreement. I think that's very nice, and and that is a good ISQ piece that I encourage our our uh, our listeners to to check out. I think one thing we could agree on, though, Jeff, is that uh, summits might be complicated, right? And so it's it's one of the things that I like to do is look at these summits and really dig into the the back and forth and the you know the interactions that they have and the and the face to face interactions. And my sense is that you you kind of privilege the the things outside the summit. You you think about the you know the bargaining positions and the and the structure of the situation. And I think that's great. I, I, I'm glad that, that you and I both uh, exist in this world. Yeah. No, I also am glad that we both exist. <laughs> the other, the, the other uh, thing I'll just say on that, too, is, is you are also, I think, part of a, um, a growing group of, of people in this sort of rationalist camp uh, who have been thinking about diplomacy in these ways. So, you know, Rob Traeger has this book, Diplomacy, that uh, makes very similar types of arguments, where it's basically like the decision to communicate or the decision to sort of pursue diplomacy just in and of itself has certain ramifications that that can reveal lots of things about the the stake and maybe even reveal their intentions when you say like I'm I'm, gonna, I'm willing to do this that is in itself sort of a, an interesting you know piece of data for for the other side uh, and so I think you know I think like a, to get back to we started at the beginning of this uh, 
this discussion. You know, diplomacy just has not been taken seriously uh, for for a long time, and I think you know it's it's starting to change. Whether you're thinking about it in terms of like the interaction itself, or whether you think about it more in terms of the way you were just articulating, which is sort of like what diplomacy means, and so the, the actors that engage in diplomacy, what signals might they be sending? I think this is all uh, all really interesting stuff that. You know, and I actually don't think that the the gap between the two sides is all that all that big. It might actually be one area where um, sort of rationalists and more psychological theories have more to kind of say to one another than in other areas. And so that that's another nice thing I think about um, studying diplomacy in IR. I think that's right. Uh, thank you so much, Marcus. I appreciate you joining me today. I had a great time as always, Jeff. was a good diplomacy discussion i'm I'm regretting being so down on diplomacy now because i like i I think it's i think you're just wrong i mean so that's well i'm you know know, i'm a former state department employee (laughs) you feel some guilt i hope this never sees the light of the day no one's listening to this yeah that's true